Um, over the past uh, quite a while now, with the exception of a, of a break in the fall for a different series, but we, we've been in a series in the Gospel of Mark. So there are four books in the Bible that really hone in on the life of Jesus, the shortest of which is Mark. And uh, we're calling this series Jesus, Con or King. I'm kind of looking at the life of Jesus as uh, known through the Bible and looking at this question, was, was Jesus who he said he was? Or was he essentially a, a con artist? Or maybe he was fine himself, but maybe his believers, maybe his followers just made up some impressive stuff about him that we've come to believe. So it's actually more legend than fact. You can catch up on the whole series on the website. It's gracecity.ca. Just go to the media page. There are, there's a growing uh, list of talks there from the series. This morning we're in Mark chapter 10, so we're flying along. And uh, I'm going to read to you Mark chapter 10, verse 32 to verse 45. So Mark 10, 32 to 45. Feel free to, uh, if you've got a phone with a Bible on it, get that out or, or, or a, a Bible or look at the screen here uh, behind me. So Mark 10, verse 32 to 45. It says this, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, where they will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise." And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray together. Jesus, there's, there's, there's no one like you. We were just singing it. There's, there is no one like you. And uh, Jesus, we, we want to know you more this morning. We say that everything that happens in this place when we gather as a church, when we gather in our life groups throughout the week, God, as we seek to serve those in need, anything else that I could list off, Jesus, this is about you and about your glory and about you being known. And God, right now I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that that would, that that would even be happening right now around this room. Spirit, that you would point us towards Jesus, that we would know him as as our hope, as our peace, as our rest, as our everything. Spirit, would you come and do that in this place, even right now? Give me uh, wisdom as we uh, look into 
God, your word uh, together. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, just a few days ago, uh, a number of news outlets, so CBC Ottawa, The Citizen, uh, TSN 1200, they were all running stories on a guy named Kyle Turris. He was a defenseman for the Senators who got traded to Nashville last week. And uh, the articles uh, talked about, they actually had quotes from Kyle Turris and from his wife about their time uh, in Ottawa. He played in Ottawa for quite some time. And in these articles, he, uh, he said this, we, um, along with, uh, he was speaking on behalf of himself and his wife, Julie, were just a couple of 20-something kids with a new puppy with no connection to the city around us. And then he goes on to say, we had no idea what the future would hold, and in our wildest dreams, neither of us would have predicted how this city would take such a big piece of our hearts. And then the article went on to talk about how the city, how Ottawa took such a big piece of, uh, of his heart and his wife's heart. Um, the article said, Turris also offered a special goodbye, traded to Nashville, uh, a special goodbye for the Capital City Condors, a special needs hockey program that played such, such a central role in his life. And then Turris said this, we had no idea just how much this relationship would affect us. Jim and Shana Perkins, they're the, uh, some of the organizers of the Capital City Condors hockey team, said that they are some of the most selfless people we've known and just like we're indebted to Brian Murray, the former GM for the Sens, for bringing us to Ottawa, we're forever grateful to Jim and Shana Perkins for bringing us into the Condors family. Um, I know I'm in a church with more football and basketball fans. That's because you're all horrible Canadians, and you should like hockey more than both of those sports. But if you are a hockey fan, you might remember back to the Senators' playoffs run, playoff run last season. Uh, there was a game against the Rangers when Carl Torres scored three goals. And he was, like, he was the hero of the night. I mean, like, the, the Canadian Tire Center was going crazy. All of Ottawa kind of just going crazy over at St. Louis Bar and Grill across the street, which is packed for the games. Just everywhere in town going crazy for this guy. He led the team that right that, that night, right? He's, he's the leader. He's, he's the hero of the evening. But what a lot of people don't know is that 90 minutes after the game, right? So like, you know, imagine the guy, he's coming off the ice, he goes in, he's got all the media interviews, the team is going nuts, there's a sense of energy to it. Then it's like getting showered and getting cleaned up. Players are probably going to, you know, who knows what, there's probably a party, they're probably getting invited to clubs, they're probably going out to various things to celebrate the big win. Where does Kyle Turris go and show up 90 minutes later? He shows up at a banquet room of a hotel where the Capital City Condors, the special needs hockey program, are having a celebration that night. They didn't think he was coming. He actually told them in advance, I'm not actually going to be able to make it. And then as a surprise, he shows up 90 minutes later and the room just erupts. Like these kids and their parents just go crazy for this guy. And I'm reading these stories and I'm thinking, you know what, there's something so refreshing about this. Because I bet if we went out to Elgin Street this morning, or over to Bank Street, or over to the, the mall, and we did kind of a, just a, a loose, informal survey of names that would come to mind when we hear the word leader. When we hear the word leader. Or maybe let's use kind of an associated word, uh, role, or authority, or position or title, what names come to mind. What I suspect is among those names, we would probably hear about um, leaders that are, that are, I say leaders, that are perhaps better known for their social media posts than they are for their social engagement, or better known for being ruthless rather than being gracious. Uh, there's no shortage of, of leaders in our culture who many would 
see as leaders, but really they're people who are feared for not very good reasons. They're certainly not leading in grace. They're certainly not leading in compassion. So when I came across this story, I was like, man, I just I can't read enough of this. I really enjoyed reading it because it was just so refreshing to me. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you find even kind of scanning the news. I'm quite a news junkie myself that after a while it just gets tiresome. (laughs) After a while you just go, man, surely there must be something better. Well, this morning we're picking up this series in Mark, looking at Jesus on a journey to Jerusalem. Jesus, the leader, How do we know that Jesus is a leader? Well, it's been said that a leader without followers is just somebody out for a walk. Now, we know that Jesus is out going for a walk. He's walking to Jerusalem, but his followers are behind him. They are with him. They are going with him. They're going up to Jerusalem. But we also read that his followers, that they're very afraid. There's a fear. I was thinking about this this morning. It's interesting. Matt was preaching two weeks ago, and a key point that he was making in his sermon that you can, again, you can check it out online if you missed it, is he was saying, because of an engagement that Jesus had with a guy called the rich young ruler, Matt was saying that it's possible to meet Jesus and to go away sad. And me, having grown up in a Christian culture, hears that. It's like, really? You can meet Jesus and go away sad? But Matt's exactly right. The rich young ruler, this guy who had everything, and Jesus says to him, look, if you want to follow me, sell it all. Make me number one. Not your money, not your stuff. Me. Make me number one. And he's like, oh, I, he, can't, he can't do it. So he goes away sad. So we learn that it's possible to meet Jesus and go away sad. This morning we're learning that it's possible to be around Jesus and be afraid. I'm not the greatest spokesman for Christianity right now, am I? I'm not selling it very well. But it is. It's possible to be around Jesus and be afraid. Well, why is it that they were afraid? Why do we read that in in, in Mark 10, that Jesus' followers were around him and they were afraid? Well, it's for this reason. These people had been working out who Jesus was. And they weren't fully there yet, but they were starting to get it. Initially, they thought that Jesus was just like, just another rabbi, just another teacher. We even hear that language. We hear it in the verses that I read this morning. They refer to him as teacher. Many, Many just thought of him just as a teacher. His disciples are getting it a bit more than that, but they're still using that kind of language. But in watching Jesus, seeing how he operates, seeing how he engages with people, there's something different about this rabbi. There's something different about this teacher, this, this rabbi, this teacher, this Jesus. And Jesus at that time was a very common name. This Jesus, though, could heal the sick. This Jesus could cast demons out of people. Well, that's weird. This Jesus knew what people were thinking before they even said anything. There was something different about this Jesus. And they had also seen this Jesus in conflict with some of the religious rulers. And they knew that being around this Jesus would mean at times also being around conflict. So they're marching towards Jerusalem. Off they go. Jesus is kind of at the head of the pack. And they're going towards Jerusalem. And Jesus, in this, in this section of Scripture, has said for the third time, he said it now for the third time, that he would have to give his life, that he would be put to death. And they know that that's only going to come about through conflict. And they know that Jerusalem is going to be the very seat of conflict. Jesus is going to Jerusalem where not only that's where the religious establishment kind of was centered, but also the Roman authority in the area. The Romans had a puppet king in place in Jerusalem. So there's conflict coming in Jerusalem and they're walking towards it. And that's why we read that those that were following Jesus, that they were afraid. Wouldn't you be? I would be. 
Jesus is saying he's going to go there, that people are going to arrest him, that they're going to spit on him, that they're going to mock him, that they're going to do all of these things. And you're thinking, I'm walking with the guy that that's going to happen to? Maybe that's going to happen to me as well. So having spent time with Jesus, his followers are starting to work it out. They're working out that Jesus may very well be the Messiah that they had been expecting, this promised one that they had been expecting, but they also knew their understanding of the word Messiah had kind of a military connotation to it. The word Messiah and conflict, those things came together and they're starting to feel that going, oh boy, this could get really messy. Now, about 700 years earlier, God spoke through a prophet named Isaiah. And what is spoken then is remarkably similar to what Jesus says. Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 33 and 34, he says, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. That's Jesus speaking in Mark 10. 700 years earlier, roughly, the prophet Isaiah, God speaks through him saying this. It sounds very similar to the words of Jesus. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Do you hear the parallels in what Jesus is saying, what's coming literally down the road, and what Isaiah speaks 700 years earlier? A little phrase in there that we might miss. I missed it reading over it a number of times. Face like a flint. What's that about? Set my face like a flint. I remember back when I was a kid, I was in Boy Scouts, and I remember going winter camping. I did it all of once. I will never do it again. And I remember going winter camping, and I remember somebody having a flint. And I remember them building the fire, getting some birch bark, uh, getting some things that, that could light easily at the base of the fire, but then using a flint, which is, which is a, it, it, it's a sedimentary stone. It's a very hard stone that when steel is struck against it, it makes a spark. And I remember seeing somebody with this flint device that they squeeze together and makes that connection and you're able to get a fire going. It makes enough of a spark that you can light a piece of birch bark or, or, or a little piece of uh, paper or whatever it might be on fire. Jesus setting his face like a flint. Jesus knew that he was coming into conflict. Jesus knew that, that the rulers, that the authorities in Jerusalem, they're like, they're like the steel. They're like the hardened steel. They're not going to shift. They're stubborn. They are set in their ways. They're not going to give like a solid piece of steel that, that's holding up the very roof that we're sitting under right now. It doesn't give. It's solid that way. Except in their case, it's a negative thing. Hardness of heart. But Jesus, his face sent like flint, and when flint and steel do this, there's a spark that's going to come. And that spark that came through that conflict, through that impact, ignited a fire then that is still burning today. And the fact that you're sitting in this room here this morning is proof of that. But Jesus is acknowledging that, and even Isaiah, 700 years earlier, recognizing that God speaking through him in that way, that the Son of God would have his face set like flint. And we read in Mark 10 that Jesus, with laser-like focus, is focused 
on Jerusalem. He has to go there. He has to be handed over. He has to be put to death. But three days later, he would arise. Now surely this would cause the disciples, you know, hearing Jesus say this, the way that Jesus would lay his life down, the way that he would be mocked, the way that he would be spit upon, giving his life, the Son of Man being handed over as a ransom, right? As a ransom, as a payment for something else. For them, maybe they're starting to work this out. And then hearing that Jesus, yes, he would be put to death, but he would come to life three days later. Surely the disciples hearing this, they would go, oh, Jesus, you are so worthy of worship. You are so worthy of praise. We just want to, we want to stop right now in the middle of the road and we're going to have a little church service right here because you are amazing. What you're telling us is amazing. Who else would do this for us? And, and who else would come back to life three days later? Like we haven't seen it happen yet, but we've, we've seen you heal the sick. We've watched you cast out demons. We've seen you do these incredible things. So when you say you're going to come back to life three days later, yeah, we believe. We want to believe it. We believe it in faith and we want to worship you. Surely these saints, surely these future apostles, surely these men will respond that way, right? Well, good. Let's keep reading. Let's read how they respond. Good news coming. Good news coming. Okay, here's what they have to say. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the two of the ones that are the closest to Jesus, they come up to Jesus and they say... Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Face palm. <laughs> like, total face palm moment. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. In case you've missed the point, James and John are giving a master class in how not to be a friend in this moment. How would you respond if you were Jesus? I know how I'd respond. I would be livid. I'd be like, guys, did you not hear me? Did you not hear when I said that we're going to this city, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be mocked, they're going to make fun of me, they're going to spit on me, they're going to put me to death, and three days later I'll come back to life. And you come to me and you say, you want me to do whatever you ask of me? Or you want me to do whatever you're asking of me? I would be furious with them. I would be crushed. I would be just absolutely thrown. I, I, I suspect you would probably be the same. But in a mark of immeasurable grace, I mean, it really is. It's just immeasurable grace. Jesus responds by saying this. The least rich-like thing to say, the least Matt or Emily or Andrew or anybody else-like thing to say, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? This is Jesus. I mean, this is amazing. This is Jesus. Now let's just pause here for a minute. Isn't this exchange, isn't this exchange sort of like a snapshot of what our own relationship with God can be like? Uh, again, I, I mentioned a few moments ago, I, I was raised in a Christian culture myself. I was the master of going through the motions. Many of you know my story to, you know, to various degrees, depending on how long you've been with us as a church. But I know in my own life, this, this is really kind of a mark of what my relationship with God has been like myself, where I'm more focused on getting the things of God, getting stuff from God, getting my request answered, than I am of just coming before God and going, God, there is no one like you. I just want to enjoy time with you. I just want to be with you. Right now, at least for the next few minutes, I don't even want to ask anything of you. I just want to enjoy being with you. But you know what? I'm so not like that. There's still times when I'm so not like that. 
when God and His grace will, will reveal something to me further of His grace and it just, just shows me exactly what Jesus has done for me on the cross and all of these truths that can be right here in front of me and I respond by going, God, there's something I want you to do for me. This past week, we, uh, we, we bought our kids something called um, a grow clock. Uh, our, our kids tend to wake up at, at something parents refer to as kid o'clock. As far as I can tell, it's roughly three hours uh, different. So it's a time zone based somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So if you want your kids to get up at, say, 7 o'clock, you know, somewhere, maybe not three hours, but somewhere around 5 or 5.30, they're probably going to wake up. So somebody has invented this thing called a grow clock, right? And the grow clock, you can set it for a certain time, and overnight the screen is a very, very kind of uh, gentle blue, hardly even noticeable. But this magical grow clock, when you set it for a certain time, it becomes bright and there's a smiling sun face on it. And the idea is that when the kids see that sun face on it, then they know, ah, now it is no longer kid o'clock. Now we are allowed to get up and get out of bed. Now this has been a really interesting week in our, in our household because of this, because our kids love this clock. Like they're absolutely mesmerized by it. Now there have been a couple mornings where still the clock lights up at a time that still it's, it's not as early as kid o'clock but it's still quite early and they, they see this clock and they get so excited about it. They start screaming. They're jumping up and down. Joshua's in his crib. He can't get out of his crib on his own and Zara runs out of the room and into our room. The sun is up. The sun is up. The sun is awake. The sun's awake. Joshua's then freaking out because he can't get out of the crib to come in and run and do this and it's just chaos in the house for like three or four minutes. Well, it's like I'm thinking somebody's broken into the house. I'm like, what's all the commotion? What's going on? I'm ready to get like all ninja kind of protecting my family. It's like, no, it's just a clock doing what the clock is supposed to do. But even though I'm kind of startled awake, still there's something about my kid's voice that I just love. I love it. And I don't care if they're excited about a, about a, about a clock that, that, that costs way more money than it ever should. But anyway, I don't care that they're just excited about that clock. I love hearing their voice. Let me give you another example. There are times when our kids will come up to us, and Zara is able to, to talk quite a bit. She's three and a half years old. Zara is definitely the spokesperson of the two, if you know my children. And Zara comes up, and sometimes she'll say, um, Daddy, there's something that I want. And usually it's one of three things. Usually it is uh, chocolate. Uh, usually it's um, uh, The Wiggles, which is a new Australian TV show that we have found on Netflix. No offense, Wiggles, but if you're in this room and you have kids, don't do it. All right, just don't do it. It's crazy. It's a one-way track to, to to music that you will wish you had never brought into your home. Uh, and then the third thing that that sometimes uh, they will want is some sort of other treat. Now, sometimes I try to head it off of the past, right? Sometimes I see the kids coming up to me, and I know they're going to ask for something. So I say to them, I get right down, like right down to their level, and I say, "Can I have a hug?" And right away, Zara goes, no, 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 Daddy, I just want chocolate. <laughs> go, no, can I have a hug? No, no, Daddy, I just want chocolate. And this is exactly what we can be like with God. But you know what? For me as a father, even if my daughter or my son, when he's able to speak a bit better, he's going to do the same thing because this is what I did with my parents. This is what you did with your parents. Even when they come up and don't want my affection or don't want time with me, they just want something from me, I still delight in hearing their voice. And if that's true of me, if that's true of fathers in this room that are far better fathers than I could ever be, how much more true is it of God? 
Now what I don't want you to hear from this section of what I'm wanting to teach you this morning is shame on you if you just go before God and say, God, there's something I want to ask of you. Shame on you for not taking time to worship. That's not my heart at all. God in His grace and in His love still welcomes you in and still says exactly what Jesus says here. What is it that you want me to do for you? So rather than just stopping praying and not praying at all, if you think, well, no, all, all I know to do is to go and ask something of Him. You know what I would say to you? Keep doing it. Keep doing it because he's still, you're, you're His beloved child. He still loves to have you come and ask things of Him. But my encouragement to you as well would be to prioritize first just enjoying Him. Just enjoy time with Him. Enjoy time worshiping Him. Yes, come with requests. Yes, come with petitions. Yes, come with things that are weighing heavily on you that you want to ask of your good Father. Absolutely, of course. But I think you'll find that more faith is stirred inside of you if you first just enjoy Him. Jesus, in incredible grace, says that to the disciples. What is it? What do you want me to do for you? Why does Jesus respond that way? Well, it's because He knows that's what His Father is like. He knows that that's how God the Father is. That's how God the Father responds to us. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. If you then, if you who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So that's the first one. Jesus is, is, is a much better Savior. Jesus is a much better Savior than we could ever be or than anybody else around us. The second thing that I want to come on to in these verses that we're looking at, because there's a lot in here, is that Jesus is a better king. Jesus is a better king. James and John ask for key places of title and prestige in Jesus' kingdom. So when Jesus asks what he can do for them, they say, well, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Now remember, the disciples are thinking like Jesus is going and he's going to have conflict in Jerusalem and then Jesus is actually going to govern over the land. Like the Roman oppressors that were ruling over the region of the time, they will be removed by the Messiah that they were starting to work out is Jesus. But Jesus is obviously talking about a much different kingdom. He's got a much bigger plan than just the Roman Empire. His plan involves the entire world. It's a much greater kingdom that knows no end whatsoever. But the disciples hadn't quite got there in their head yet. So they're saying to Jesus, Jesus, granted, when this all happens, when you overthrow those other powers, let us be your, like, let us be chief right up there with you. We want to be the VPs. We want to be the people in positions of power. We want to sit at your left and your right hand. And Jesus' response to them is quite interesting. His response to them is, well, that's not for me to grant. That's not for me to give. That's, that's, that's up to my Father. That's not for me to give. And we, think, we hear that we think, well, what is that about? Jesus, the very Son of God. How is it not for Him to give? How, how could He not have freedom to do this? And here we see an incredible example of, within the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, absolute equality in roles. We would never say, the Bible would never say, that Jesus is more valuable than God the Father, or that the Holy Spirit is more valuable than Jesus, or or any other swap of that. Absolute, equal in value, but unique in their roles. And Jesus knows the role that the Father has called him to do, and he's focused on it. At that time, it involves going to Jerusalem. That's what it is. But Jesus, as the Son of God, is still under the authority of the Father. And he's going to go. And he says to the disciples, he says, actually, you know what? That's not for me to give. That's not mine to grant. Still submitted 
to his father. There's something beautiful in this for us as a church. It means that we can look at different serving roles in the church and recognize that there are different areas that, that we might look at and on, and on a quick glance think, oh, well, that, that role is more important. That, that role is more valuable. And I would say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. The role of the preacher, the role of the worship leader, the role of the microphone leadership that we can be very quick to praise is no more valuable than the roles that people carry out faithfully, faithfully in this church that most of us will never even uh, see happen in front of us. Because by the time we walk in the room, it's pretty much been done. Those roles are equal in value. They're just different roles. But before God, absolute equality in value. And the individuals as well. Again, in our culture, this is a thing that's really formed us. We associate roles and responsibility with the value of a person. So somebody who has a lot of influence, somebody who has a lot of authority, we think, well, they must be a more valuable person than somebody who's down on their luck and and isn't contributing to society in whatever way. And you know what? Before God, that is categorically false. All human life is of equal value. All of it. Roles, responsibilities, unique? Yeah, absolutely. We see that in church life. We see that in family life. We see that in life in the city, in all these different things, people carrying different roles and responsibilities, but absolute equality of worth. So Jesus' response to the disciples in that is one where he is making it very clear, no, I'm submitted to my Father. That's not even for me to grant. And then Jesus gathers the disciples together. We, We read, I mean, these disciples... They crack us up, don't they? We read that the other disciples were indignant. What a great word to read in Scripture. They were indignant with James and John. What are you asking? We were just over here having coffee, and you go to Jesus and ask to sit at his left and right hand? Like They were furious with him, right? Jesus is like, boys, calm down. Just chill. Come here. I want to teach you about true leadership. I want to teach you about true authority. I want to teach you about true responsibility. Jesus gathers them and he says this to them in Mark 10, 42. Jesus called them and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Part of our mission as a church, well, let me just repeat the whole mission statement. Grace City Church exists to help people follow Jesus, to raise leaders, and to start churches. And that raising of leaders finds its foundations in this. What does our our leadership look like? What do we want leadership to look like in Grace City Church? As much as we can, and we will fail, I will fail time and time again. And thank honestly, church, thank you for when you're patient with me. Thank you for when you show me grace. Let's let that be a regular part of our culture in this church, giving grace to leaders and and, and leaders giving grace to those that they are wanting to serve. But our foundations of it are found in this, that this is what Jesus is like. Jesus, as the very Son of God, Jesus refers to himself here as a Son of Man. That was his kind of preferred way to refer to himself as building off of something that the prophet Daniel said many years before. We'll talk about that another time, but when you read Son of Man, that's Jesus talking about himself, to be clear. Jesus says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We want our leadership culture in this church to reflect that. Leadership marked by service. 
And we're a church that believes that God has called us to start other churches in Canada sometime. We've only been going like a year and a half, or depending if you, know, if you count to when we first started meeting in the house, uh, about two years now, coming up on two years. You know, it's early days for us. But we really believe, we know, I'm going to say, we know that God is going to use this church to start other churches in our, in our nation. But let me tell you this, the people that will be starting those other churches, they will only be sent if the biggest mark of their leadership is service. We're not going to be sending those that think they know all the answers and just want to prove it to those that they're leading. That's not a good place to be. There's an enemy that is quick to pounce. Leaders who are full of pride. What does scripture say about pride? Pride goeth before the fall. You know what else it says? God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. I don't know about you, but I would never want to be in a position where God is opposing me. Thankfully in Christ, he never will. But opposing the proud, those who think, those who are not looking to Jesus as Lord, but rather looking to themselves. Those are not leaders worth following. If you ever, you know what, let me say this. If you ever see that in me, go to a different church. You're better off going to a different church if you see that in me. If you see that among the leadership of this church, if you see that in us and you raise it with us and we never go, you know what, wow, you're right. Man, we feel convicted. God, help us in this. If we don't respond that way and you see that in us, run. Go somewhere else because the church is on a one-way track towards a lot of heartache. Our leadership must be modeled after Jesus Christ. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples, they're slowly working this out. Jesus' kingdom is different. His kingdom is a different kingdom. He's not just talking about Jerusalem here. He's not just talking about the Roman oppressors that are kind of keeping our people, our culture, oppressed under their thumb. He's talking about freedom from something much much greater. And as we keep going on in this story, we'll see the disciples getting it more. And then after the resurrection, the lights really go off. And they really get it. And they really worship. And then we see these men propelled from stubborn, kind of cowardly men. The same way, you know what? I know I pick on them a bit, but I'd be the exact same. You'd be the exact same. But God in His grace keeps pursuing them, keeps softening them. And then God uses them to go on and do incredible things for God. This is the Jesus that we worship. Jesus is a better Savior. Jesus is a better friend in how he responds to the disciples. Jesus is a better King. I'm going to invite the band to come and get set up. We're going to enjoy taking communion together right now. And uh, if you...